Jesus is King. Welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, rebuilding Christendom, restoring Catholic culture and tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, the editor of One Peter Five. We are honored today with the presence virtually of His Excellency, Bishop Athanasius Snyder. Bishop Snyder, it's an honor to have you on the show today. You're welcome. Today we'll be talking about his newest book, which is called The Catholic Mass. It is uh, Steps to Restore the Centrality of God in the Liturgy, certainly a pertinent topic, which is central to our hearts and souls here at 1 Peter 5. And we'll also be getting into, we'll have uh, His Excellency's comments on, on the recent controversies, the recent news regarding Fatima and Russia in just a minute. And Your Excellency, would you begin this with a prayer for us, please? Yes. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater Noster, quies in celis, sanctificetum nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in celo et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis odie, et dimite nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, Sed libera nos a mano. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Your Excellency. Well, I'd like to begin the, the conversation about your book with this striking photo that you have on the cover, which is a, a high mass in the ruins of uh, is it Germany? That's this war-torn scene. Can you tell us about this photo that's on the, the cover and why that's significant? Yes, it is a photo from 1946 in June in the city of Münster in uh, Westphalia in southwest, uh, no, in northwest Germany, uh, the, in the cathedral of this city Münster where was uh, the cardinal, the famous cardinal von Galen. He is blessed uh, and he was um, beatified by the church and because he was resisting heroically in the Nazi time to Hitler and defending uh, the truth. And he became a cardinal after the war and this was his cathedral. He, this cathedral was bombed, as uh, one can see on the photo, and a part of the um, apse of the church was destroyed. Even one can see uh, there the, the stones outside the church and the other houses. But nevertheless, the situation of ruin, uh, the church continued to celebrate a solemn mass as one can see on the picture. So undisturbed in midst of a chaos and ruins, the church keeps her fidelity to celebrate uh, faithfully uh, the, the beautiful traditional liturgy. And I um, consider this photo very um, significant and timely for our 
situation now in the church, it is uh, for me a symbol very much apt to express our situation because we are now within the church without doubt uh, in midst of spiritual ruin, spiritual destruction, and especially the liturgical life in, in so many parts of the church, in the parishes and so on, in the convents, is really like a ruin. But God calls us uh, not um, to be uh, discouraged, but to continue with confidence and with joy to celebrate the traditional liturgy, the ancient rite of the church, the liturgy of and the mass of all ages, uh, as I would call this, not uh, this expression of all ages is not referring to the details of the rite, but to the spirit and the atmosphere of this traditional form. And so continue, and then God will again, through this, our fidelity to the tradition, uh, rebuild his church and his liturgy. As I, I, I love the, the photo because it really describes what you just said and it also captures the text, the wording that you have in this work, which is such a powerful spiritual work for our time. It's really spiritual reading um, because it really describes that continuation of um, celebrating the rite with confidence and joy. You have um, 12 different chapters that are just a spiritual reflection on the different aspects of the mass without shying away from the controversies. Uh, but I wanted to start with a quote on chapter five, which is the mass is splendor, which is very much shown in this photo. You say this on page 124, the holy mass is a splendor of beauty in the first place because of the beauteous splendor, divine, spiritual, and moral of the supreme act of Christ's own sacrifice. This beauty must then necessarily be manifested in the rite itself and in sacred art and sacred buildings, since their ultimate purpose is to manifest the beauty of God and the glory of his redemptive work. How do we, how do we enter into that beauty in, in a time when there are these ruins, these spiritual ruins, Your Excellency? Yes, we simply have again to discover uh, the liturgy itself, the traditional liturgy, the richness which contains the traditional liturgy and all the other uh, treasures, liturgical treasures of the church, the Gregorian chants and the other rites, not only of the Holy Mass, that are the beautiful other rites in the church. And so we have to be faithful and to keep these rites, to celebrate them, to promote their celebrations and simply uh, deepen our knowledge also of these texts and uh, celebrate uh, with, uh, with a deeper conscience of that treasure. And therefore, I decided to publish this book to share with the faithful and the priests uh, what we have, uh, uh, what a great treasure we have in this liturgy.
Yeah, yes, you you continue on commenting on commenting on the new litter. You so you say that the Novus Ordo Mise suffers from a serious deficiency in expressing the splendor of the beauty of the divine liturgy. Why why is the Novus Ordo so deficient in in this beauty? It is evident. It is uh, simply as it is uh, by the structure of the Novus Ordo itself. Um, of course, one can, I concede, uh, celebrate the Novus Ordo also in a very uh, worthy and uh, beautiful manner. One can celebrate the Novus Ordo ad orientem, it is not forbidden. One can celebrate the Novus Ordo entirely in Latin with Gregorian chant, without uh, female altar girls or lay ministers of Eucharist and so on, all this stuff, it's not necessary for the Novus Ordo. We can, we can avoid this. And so it could be done, but uh, the text itself, themselves, <clears throat> in the Novus Ordo, even if we will celebrate this in such an atmosphere, a traditional shape, the texts itself, themselves in the in the in the novus ordo are poor in in comparison with the traditional liturgy they are first fewer so they are reduced the prayers especially in the beginning of the mass there is so shortened the beginning so there is almost no room pedagogically to prepare to enter the holiness the sanctuary straight away uh, the sign of the cross and a very short confiteor and so and it is but the, the traditional rite introduces all the celebrants with the psalm 42 with the double and longer confiteor and with the prayers of climbing up the steps and so on the, this is so helpful and so uh, necessary for the priest and the people to uh, to prepare their souls for this most holy moment here on earth, the sacrifice of the cross. And so, and especially the offertory prayers, it is a very serious defect in the Novus Ordo. Uh, they are expressing almost nothing from about the sac sacrifice, but rather the communion service or and they are spiritually, in comparison with the traditional offertory prayers, very poor. And so, uh, and then the gestures, uh, even as I repeat, you can celebrate the tradition, the Novus Ordo in a traditional shape, ad orientem and Latin, but in comparison with the traditional mass, for example, they have some few genuflections, the priest during the canon, um, then very few signs of the cross. And this is a little bit diminishing uh, the atmosphere of a more solemn and a more uh, sublime and sacred form. Uh, this is the, the, the fact. Yes, yes um, you mentioned on, um, in your chapter on the mass as adoration. Um, this is something that is often promoted in the Novus Ordo as the Novus Ordo has a bigger lectionary, it's more didactic, it teaches you things. 
Uh, but you note on page 33 that it's not only about the intellect, but it's also about the heart. We see the beauty of the truth that urges us to love the Eucharistic Christ even more. And can you speak on this adoration that uh, really is more important than even catechesis? Well, catechesis is important, of course, and this is also a lack in our time, a good catechesis, because without a good knowledge of the faith, you cannot pray in a, in a right way. And therefore, but the issue is not this. Here is the issue. The place of the catechesis is not in first time the Holy Mass. The Holy Mass is primarily the adoration of the most holy trinity through the presence of the sacrifice of the cross. So our first task here on earth, and it will be in heaven, uh, to adore God, the Holy Trinity, with all the angels, with all the redeemed creation. And we have to start this here on earth, the adoration. Uh, and uh, therefore, this has to be stressed in the right, in the manner of celebration of the Holy Mass. And the catechetical, didactical uh, aspect is a secondary aspect in the Holy Mass. It has uh, um, um, its importance, of course, in the church, very much, the catechesis, but in outside the Mass, we have to organize a sound catechesis outside the Mass, it is necessary, so, but not to transform, and this is the, the tendency of the Novus Order, to, to transform the moment of adoration which we have in a kind of catechesis uh, class, catechesis lesson, which are, to my opinion, an exaggerated stressing of the intellectual moments. So, and transforming the first part of the Mass in the Novus Ordo in a kind of biblical academy uh, that we have to, to read and uh, a very a variety of biblical texts which are very difficult also to understand in the Novus Order. The, the, the choice of these readings are not didactical at all, not pedagogical, so many. And they had to be, then we can do Bible readings outside the Mass. It's also possible and explain the difficult readings, but in the Holy Mass, the Mother Church uh, had chosen during the more than thousand years, the traditional lecture, very, um, uh, how do you say, very understandable uh, and mo the most important passages of the Holy Scripture. So we are not scribes uh, that we have to, we have not Protestants to memorize all the Bible uh, because the Holy Scripture, of course, is the word of God. But the Holy Scripture is not the only one, a source of our faith. And uh, this is not the only one source, source of revelation. We have also the sacred tradition. It's also uh, a source of our faith through which God reveals himself, revealed himself. The sacred tradition, the oral um, tradition of the of the revealed truth. And so 
therefore it is sufficient in the during the holy mass to to give only the most important necessary passages of the old and new testament and this and to make more stress on the moment of the sacrifice which we are celebrating the um, i would say the biblical aspect is another liturgy. It is the liturgy of the breviary, so the divine office. The divine office is more the appropriate place to, to read. And in the divine office, almost the entire Bible is read by the priests and, and the monks and, and the religious. They read all the Bible during the lessons of the Matins, for example, through all the year. And this is also a possibility, this is another place of uh, knowing and reading uh, ex more extensively uh, the word of God. But the Holy Mass, we should restore the primarily accent of no, that this is the adoration and the, the sacrifice of Golgotha present here to, to concentrate ourselves more in this. Yeah, yes, you see on um, page 168, the church has united in a single sacred action the two aspects of worship carried out in the Old Testament, the action of offering the sacrifice, as was done in the temple, and the action of proclaiming and hearing the word as happened in the synagogues. It would seem that the Novus Ordo seems to take the synagogue portion to the, to, to somewhat to the exclusion of the temple. Um, now, what would you say, Your Excellency, because some people quote Octorum Fidei from Pius VI, they quote Octorum Fidei to say that the Pope cannot promulgate deficient rights. How can we be faithful Catholics and yet still have some critique to the officially promulgated right of the Novus Ordo? Well, the, I think we have to enter the uh, Octorum Fide Ball of Pope Pius VI. This expression is not uh, infallible expression. It's simply a, state, a statement. No? We have also to distinguish not every expression of a Pope, even of a good Pope, is infallible in itself. So, and has to be uh, interpreted in, in a, uh, well, in a wise manner. So this is not a, that a Pope cannot promulgate deficient right, maybe he was thinking uh, heretical rights. This I agree, but deficient is an expression which we can, which we can understand in different ways. Uh, even deficient could be really um, not so perfect. And this is possible simply by the fact, uh, for example, in the 16th century, there was a cardinal in Rome, a Spanish cardinal, uh, who uh, completely um, um, proposed a new form of breviary, divine office, uh, this destroying the, all in, the, the, the entire traditional breviary. It's also liturgy and proposed a new liturgical form of divine office completely made on the table. And this, uh, completely revolutionary form. And this is of course a deficient, this was a deficient form of liturgy, but of divine office liturgy. 
and, and the popes of that, their time approved this, two popes, until the Pope Paul the, the fourth prohibited this then, thanks be to God, such a uh, not uh, 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 anti-traditional, I would say, divine office. And therefore, uh, unfortunately, God permitted that Paul VI approved a really a deficient uh, form of the Roman rite, Eucharistic liturgy, and other and all the other rites are deficient, but not heretical. We have to stress this: not heretical, but deficient, evidently deficient. And we have to pray that the Church again restores the traditional form uh, universally. Maybe in the future they can it can keep some elements of the liturgical reform of Paul VI, which are in, in themselves uh, meaningful and helpful. Uh, we cannot say that all what Paul VI did is 100% uh, wrong. It would be exaggerated. There are maybe some uh, moments which we can say this is possible to, to maintain, but the the main form should be the traditional form which the church had in all the sacraments, I think. Yeah, that's, the, that's a very good point, Your Excellency. The, um, the breviary of Paul III, as I understand it, and I, I believe Elquin Reed in Organic Development of Liturgy makes mention of the fact that Annibale Bunini had some admiration for this breviary for, in the 16th century that was re later reversed. That's a very good point. Um, now, I, I, I really like what you say, uh, it, what you said in the beginning about not getting discouraged. You pay, talk on page 37 about how even though the Novus Ordo diminished and weakened gestures of adoration in the mass, you say that divine providence, especially in the 70s and 80s, prompted a new movement of Eucharistic adoration and the establishment of perpetual adoration chapels in various countries. How do you see divine providence working over these past few decades, even in a even in this period of spiritual uh, destruction? Exactly, we know that uh, God always is present in His church, and and God never abandons His church in the difficult times. <clears throat> and uh, so. The church is in the hands of God. We have to stress this, even in our time, so difficult. And therefore, since the year 65, when the, when the council ended and, and there began already the plans of Bugnini Commission to destroy in some way our traditional liturgy, God awakened a movement of lay people, the so-called Una Voce uh, organization, with the aim of keeping the, the traditional treasure or liturgical treasure of the church, especially the Latin language and the traditional rite. And this lay movement is so meritorious for me and remains a, um, a heroic page in the history of the recent church and an honor for the laity, of the Catholic laity. So it was an, a movement of the lay, lay people, not of the clergy in the first time. And they have a great merit 
that the conscience in the difficult years or the, in the end, in the 70s and the 80s to restore the traditional mass was kept in the church and promoted. And this was a help that then, to my opinion, uh, the, the work of the Una Voce uh, organization that in 84, uh, John Paul II uh, permitted the first, gave the first permission to celebrate again the traditional mass with some limitations, but even though, and then uh, uh, they the helped to spread and then there were other organizations of lay people after Una Voce and of priests. And this is for me a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit. And also after Summorum Pontificum in 2007, the traditional mass started, I would say, the triumphant uh, course in the church slowly and attracting so many young people, the youth. So that it, I would say the traditional mass became in the last maybe 15 years uh, or 20, 15 years, the youth mass for the young people and the children mass. So because in the, in the traditional masses, they, we have a, a great part of the participants are young people and even children, families with children. And this is a sign of hope and of the true renewal of the church. Yes, thank God. Thanks be to God. Um, and we'll speak about Traditionis Custodis in just a minute. Um, but I wanted to talk now about Fatima um, as we're in this controversy right now. But there's a great connection, uh, as you've pointed out, to the liturgy in Fatima, which is much, it's somewhat less discussed, I think. Um, but in 2020, you called for a crusade of Eucharistic reparation and the prayer that you composed for that cited the prayer of the angel at Fatima. Can you speak on the connection of the message of Fatima to Eucharistic reparation and the liturgy? Yes, it is also very clear that uh, the, the apparition of the angel, one year before Our Lady appeared, we know, God sent the angel to, to and this is, uh, connected the message of the angel of Fatima and of Our Lady, it's, to my opinion, it constitutes one great message for our time. And um, the reparation, Our Lady also spoke then to Sister Lucia about the necessity of the reparation Holy Communion on the first Saturdays. And, this, and then she spoke repeatedly of the necessity to do atonement reparation uh, for the sins against her immaculate heart and other sins. But the, the angel spoke already before about the most important reparation, it is uh, of the sins against the Eucharist or the body, the Eucharistic body and blood of Christ. And he spoke these words uh, to the children, console your God, who is so horribly 
outraged in this sacrament. So this is a voice to our day. Console your God, who is so horribly. So the angel used the word horribly. Outraged, uh, desecrated in this sacrament. This continues. I think we have to take very much at serious these words and this appeal of the angel. And in those times, for sure, there was in the Catholic parishes uh, almost no forms of uh, outrages and desecrations, sacrileges of the sacrament of the Eucharist. There were no communion in hand in 1916 and no lay ministers and so on. But therefore the, the, the words of the angel were prophetic prophetic um, spoken in view, I believe, to our times, especially. And therefore, uh, it is necessary to make a crusade all over the world and increase these to console our Lord in the Eucharist and to make prayers of atonement. This is necessary. This is our task. When we love our Lord in the Eucharist, we won't we are compelled to console him because we are stating before our eyes really a, a, a desecrations and sacrileges in mass all over the world in the latin church at least yes and thank you your excellency for this movement this is what we promote at one peter five every month calling everyone to join this crusade of eucharistic reparation in particular, it involves committing to one month of Eucharistic adoration or one hour of Eucharistic adoration per month in reparation, also promoting um, a yearly day of reparation in your diocese and other, other things. You can see the link below for joining the crusade of Eucharistic reparation. Um, I'd like to have your comments, Your Excellency, on the consecration of Russia. Uh, this is a liturgical act as well that was called for by Our Lady of Fatima, a liturgical act by the Pope of consecration in union with all the bishops. Now it's being done on a liturgical feast, the Feast of the Annunciation. Um, it's happening at a time of renewed violence and bloodshed over Kievan Rus. Can, uh, uh, I want to point all readers to your written comments with Diane Montagna. Those are linked below. Uh, can we have any, any other comments now about the consecration of Russia tomorrow? First, of course, we have to be uh, grateful to God that uh, finally Pope Francis is doing this in these difficult times. And uh, as we see, uh, he is fulfilling the, the essential requests of Our Lady. This is the mention of Russia explicitly. The, the, that this act is done in union with the bishops of the world. And the, the explicit mention of the consecration to the Immaculate Heart. So not only consecrate to Our Lady, uh, which uh, John Paul II did uh, 
when we when we analyze the formulas, he said to all mother of God, we entrust to you. This was the words of John Paul II. He not formally, directly in his expression consecrated uh, to the Immaculate Heart, but he mentioned the Immaculate Heart, but not in this um, crucial moment to entrust, and he only used entrust uh, to you. And then, so there were before now uh, our uh, <clears throat> 2022 consecration, which will take place tomorrow, there were two acts of the popes related to the request of Our Lady of Fatima. The first was in 52 by Pope Pius XII, where he uh, he wrote in his in his apostolic letter in 52 that we consecrate uh, to, the, to the Immaculate Heart of the Mother of God, the peoples in plural, so not only the people, the peoples of Russia. Well, Russia really uh, has so many different nations, you know, until now. And in that time also in, in 1917 and in 52, there were different um, nations or peoples in Russia. And so Pius XII used peoples, not Russia, but peoples of Russia. But he did not um, observe all the requests of Our Lady. Uh, he did this alone without the union of the bishops, the episcopate, the Catholic episcopate. So then in, 40, uh, uh, in 84, John Paul II did this in union with all the bishops, but did not mention Russia explicitly. And in his formula, it was not directly expressed to the Immaculate Heart, the formula itself, the words, in the, because the prayer was a very long prayer of John Paul II, where he mentioned, of course, the Immaculate Heart, but I repeat, the essential moment when it came to the expression, it was to the Mother of God. And so we see this is deficient in some way. And now when we compare the formula already published yesterday for this consecration tomorrow by Pope Francis, there are, this is the most explicit formula which was until now done because there Pope Francis, first he summoned all the bishops of the world and even wrote a letter to every bishop. It is, and I also got to the Nunciatur a copy of the letter to every bishop of the world. And this is very important personally with his signature for Francis wrote. And then uh, in the formula, he says, we solemnly, even the word solemnly was lacking in 84, John Paul II did not use the form solemnly, and, and Pius XII also did not use this, but John uh, Pope Francis says, we solemnly entrust and consecrate. So he used two words, entrust and consecrate to your immaculate heart directly, 
And then he says ourselves, the entire world of humanity, and especially Russia and Ukraine. So uh, it is the most, to my opinion, perfect form, which is possible. Uh, and I think it's, it fulfills uh, the substantial request. The mention, this additional mention of ourselves to consecrate, it, it will not evidently invalidate the consecration because we should ourselves consecrate and the, and the entire humanity to the Immaculate Heart because she is the mother of all. And to mention Ukraine, it is meaningful because in, in, in 1917, as our, when Our Lady spoke on Russia, the, the, the current day territory of Russia, of Ukraine, was part of Russia. So Our Lady had before her eyes this, also this territory, which is today called Ukraine. And therefore, uh, if Our Lady would, uh, if the Pope would today consecrate only Russia, so this territory will be lacking, which Our Lady had before her eyes also in, in 1917. And besides, the, it is evident that it's in such a conflict between these countries and, and the Pope could not uh, one-sidedly only mention Russia. It is simply even common sense and justice to mention both. And it corresponds, I repeat, to the picture which Our Lady had in 1970, substantially. And they, uh, therefore, we, we cannot, I think the, the people, even pious people, they do an, an error. They uh, approach to this issue in a very legalistic form, but this is not fitting uh, to, to a private revelation. It's still a private revelation. Fatima is not a public revelation. I have to distinguish. And we cannot treat the the request or the formulations of Our Lady like a dogma, uh, which we cannot change one word, or like a sacramental form of a sacrament, which we cannot change. Uh, it is simply Our Lady gave us these elements, elements, substantial, and uh, in her humility, uh, she, she, she she left this to the decision of the Pope, who is the, the head of the church and the authority, to, but by keeping the, the, the elements, the most important. And now Pope Francis kept the, uh, joining some other expressions which are not essential, but additional. So, and this is clear that we, we are not Pharisees and scribes that you can not change one letter, I, I, I repeat. You have not to exaggerate this. And I, it's, I repeat, it's not public revelation. It's not a sacramental form. And Our Lady did not give us a form. She left this to the church. And so, and recently also, some people are concerned about one expression in the prayer the Pope, uh, there, there is a part where there are some the titles of Our Lady, Queen of Peace, and so on. And there is a title of um, Earth of Heaven. Earth of Heaven. And it's now compared in different languages, translated in different ways. 
So in our, we got from the nunciature the, the Russian text, text of the consecration, and this expression is translated as heavenly earth, heavenly earth. So, and in, in German, it is translated uh, like, um, um, also more or less in this sense, not earth of heaven, but or a new new earth, renewed or in some way. So it is a different expression. So we cannot fix uh, only one. And it could be interpreted, to my opinion, suddenly, to my opinion, when I was three, this is an not usual expression, earth of heaven. But maybe it expresses the idea of new heaven and new earth, which we have in the Holy Scripture. God will create a new earth and a new heaven. So it is, it is a renewed earth by grace, could be interpreted, this expression. So we have to interpret this in a benevolent way, not straight away in saying this is a pagan expression of Pachamama and so on. I think it is far uh, fetching and uh, we have to interpret always in a, in a religious context, the, the closest possible positive uh, spiritual expression. For example, there, there are different poetic expressions in so many uh, songs, um, traditional songs about Our Lady, like you are the new garden. This is traditional songs, you are the new garden of heaven. So new garden or garden of heaven, it is, uh, you can find in traditional songs of Our Lady. And so, garden of heaven or earth of heaven, it's close. And so in this sense, as a new garden of heaven and so on, we can interpret this, which some people now are concerned about this one word expression, tierra uh, del cielo, del cielo and, and so on. But I repeat, we have to interpret this in a benevolent and in a Catholic way. And this is possible, it is not in itself such uh, in itself, it's not heretical or pagan in itself. We can interpret this, I repeat, in a Catholic way. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Your Excellency. Yes. Um, and so interpreting things in a benevolent way, uh, piously, uh, not legalistically. Um, lastly, last question, um, speaking on the liturgy as we have Eucharistic Reparation, this is the, the vigil of the Annunciation now and the vigil of the consecration, how do you, how can uh, the faithful, how can we spiritually prepare ourselves for uh, really abandoning ourselves to divine providence and, and what may come with this consecration? Well, uh, we are living in faith, not in vision. We are continuing to be in the valley of tears. This is our, we, we sing this in Salve Regina, in Haklakri Varum Valle, we are still on the way, on the pilgrimage. We are not yet at home. And St. Augustine said, the church is going until Christ will come uh, amidst tri tribulations. But he added, and consolations of God. In midst of tribulations and consolations of God. This is our way. So, and then our Lord uh, said in, to the apostles, in the Acts of the Apostles, 
it is not upon you to know the times established by my father. It is not upon us. The, the consecration will not have an immediate automatic, automatic effect. It is never so. And this would be a wrong understanding even of a Catholic faith. And it would be a kind of magic understanding. This is wrong. It is not, not saying. It is an act of faith. And the time where Our Lady promised the effects of concretely conversion of Russia, a time of peace for humanity, it will come in a way which we don't know and in a time established by God. And therefore we continue to believe in this. Uh, it is, to my opinion, a very simplistic way of these people and a kind of maybe also not, not readiness to carry the cross and the difficulties. Uh, maybe I, do, I, will don't, I will not see the effect of the, of the conversion of Russia and of the peace in my lifetime, maybe after me, but it will come because Our Lady promised and finally the Pope did in a substantial way what she asked and the rest let we give to God's hand. It's not important that tomorrow we'll, we, will, we will shout the triumph uh, that uh, it will come again. This is not saying for Catholics to, to think in such a way. Well, that's, that's great wisdom, Your Excellency. The readiness to carry the cross, even when, if and when the, the, the triumph does come, we know it will come. We don't know when exactly or how exactly in terms of how it exactly comes about. Um, but I, that's great wisdom for us to take into tomorrow and the consecration and into what may come in Ukraine and all the wars and however many days, weeks, months, or years this may take to all be effective uh, in God's good timing. So Your Excellency, thank you so much for your time today. Once again, everyone, please buy this fantastic text. It really is a, a marvelous spiritual reading and meditation on the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. I thank you so much for it, Your Excellency. Would you please give us a blessing to end this uh, conversation? Yes. Dominus vobiscum. Et cum spiritu tuo. Et benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris, et fili et Spiritus Sancti descendat super vos, et maneat semper. Amen. Amen. Praise be Jesus Christ. Now and forever. <laughs>